This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Morris Gleitzman, welcome to Better Reading. Well, welcome again to Better Reading. It's my pleasure once again. Mm-hmm. Back in the days where we could face-to-face, you came into the office. It must have been a few years ago now. Yes. Oh, anything, you know, anything pre-COVID has gone into a haze of of, um, of entanglement. So, yes, yeah. could have been decades ago for all I Do you think that's going to be a marker in our life, pre- and post-COVID? Well, it's, of course, the big question is, will there be a real post-COVID or will it just kind of drift into something that we just have adapted to and hopefully, you know, safely and and without too many constraints? Big question and, and, and a real dilemma for contemporary fiction writers because... For the last, I mean, I've I've been lucky because up until a few months ago, over the last two years, I've been working on a book set in the present day, but very much, you know, looking back to to earlier times. But I, I've I've got friends and colleagues who've who've had a real dilemma because, on the one hand, if your story is contemporary, to have no mention of COVID is a very obvious absence. But it's not something you can really just have ticking away, you know, in the background. You, you've either got a I think focus on it or not. And mm. it's going to be interesting to see over the next few years how the literary community deals with that. I know there are plenty of books out already that that are fully immersed well, in it. But, yeah, so. no, I was thinking about that too the other day. Even if you don't want to talk about it in fiction, you've got to say, I guess, at some point, if you're writing contemporary, that people are wearing masks or something like that. Because well, that's right. Or that we're in a right. lockdown. She couldn't go out or he couldn't go out for a meal because restaurants were closed. <laughs> I know, I know. But as soon as you do that, it's it's too big to just sort of relegate to the status of the weather. And so, uh, but, yeah. but of course, much of what, we want to write about would be swamped and twisted and and changed by placing it in a COVID environment. I I will confess that um, that the book I mentioned just now, always, which is set in the current day, but not quite because it's the f- the final book in a in a series of seven, and its themes have been building, and COVID really would have I thought long and hard as to whether. I could use COVID as a metaphor or I could find some of those things in COVID, but it just felt that it was going to be about COVID um, as it probably should be if one's going to include it in a story. So I thought, okay, I'm actually going to set this story in December 2019 mm. when probably the virus was active somewhere in the world, but mm. almost none of us knew about it. And, and I knew the story would take place within a month. So I knew that... Um, it would end before any awareness of, you know, of the public anyway around the world mm. of COVID had 
Tell me about the series. Oh, I've got to introduce you first because we've just been chatting. So there are a a few people out there that probably don't know who you are. I don't know any of them. Morris is one of Australia's best-selling and most popular authors, having published 42 books for children. He first published once in 2005, telling the story of a young boy, Felix, during the Holocaust. He has now published seven books in the Once series, concluding with Always, which is the book we're talking about today. Morris also narrated the audio book of Always, which is now available through Belinda Audio. So why is it the conclusion of the series is what I know. But just tell me from the start, if you can, how it all started and why you stayed with the book. Well, it, um, oh, it started a long time ago now. I'd say I wrote the first book um, about 15 years ago. So, and I'd been thinking about it and researching it for several years before that. Oh, scary how, how long one has to go back sometimes in one's recounting of of one's career. However, I started off thinking about friendship. The second half of my job, as with every author, is getting away from the desk and traveling. And it's the lucky authors like me who get to travel far and wide to talk to people about books and stories and all of that. And for me, it's often young people, but not always. And I'm always interested to to have insights into, into things that are important in the lives of my readers. And, well, it's it's an obvious thing to say that friendship is central, if we're lucky, to all of our lives. And I'd read quite a few um, friendship stories for young people, and I'd, I'd noticed that, that they often followed certain concerns and certain problems that, that would come from inside the friendship more often than not, and that's that's a very reasonable way to approach it. I was interested to explore friendship from a slightly different angle and, and, and have a look at how tough and, and, and resilient friendship could be when its participants were living in the most unfriendly of times. And, and that quickly got me thinking about wartime. And I decided that I wouldn't try and create a fictitious war because as soon as I started thinking about that, that area of life, I realised there was a war in my family background of great significance, World War II. I had one Jewish grandfather who, because he was a bit of a, a wanderer, a bit of a traveller as a young man, it took him away from Poland in the early years of the 20th century, around Europe. He ended up living in England, marrying, having a family, never going back to Poland. And it just meant that during those terrible years of the 30s and 40s for the Jewish communities of Europe, he had a much better chance of survival, which he did, than all of the family he'd left behind, extended family back in Poland, almost all of who were killed by the Nazis. Mm. So I'd grown up with this sense that here was this man, I'm actually named after him, his his name was Morris Gleisman, he died when my father was relatively young, just of natural causes, he, he'd he been quite elderly when my father was born. And it was just one of those realisations that something that in a work of fiction would be a key turning point in a young man's life, deciding to not join the family company as his parents would have liked him to do and to go off and discover the world and hopefully through that himself. That decision, a very common type of decision for a young person to make, pretty much allowed me to exist because if he had stayed as a 20, 21-year-old in Poland, he, he would have been... Well, my father, who was born in 1932, if he'd been born in Poland, and I only realised this after I'd written this book, 
his trajectory may well have been very similar to Felix's, the main character in Once, or not, because, of course, the great, great majority of Jewish children alive in the late 30s or born during the early 40s were not alive at the end of World War II. So statistically, my father would almost certainly have been one of those. And again, I wouldn't exist. So it's that Mm. when I became a writer and I started thinking about my life in story terms, I realised it was almost a privilege to have in my own life one of those turning point moments that are so important and so often used in fiction. But here was my grandfather doing something that, you know, in chapter one or chapter two of a novel would by the time we got to the end of that book, hold great significance in in, Mm. in the story we just read. So I had decided early on that I wanted to write a story about the best of friendships in the most unfriendly of times. And wartime was an obvious environment for that contrast. And World War II and the terrible events of the Holocaust were my obvious choice, given Mm. what I've, I've just told you. And, well... I assumed it would be just one book because that's what we always set out to do. We, we, you know, I guess we respect our readers' time and we say, I've got a story to tell and I should be able to tell it just, you know, between two covers. But that, of course, is not always how it turns out. And the years of research I did and the discovery that my ambassador for all those Jewish children who I didn't know and had tried to read about as much as I could, would once I got started to get to know, know that boy, that 10-year-old boy as he was in the first story, and once I started going on that journey with him through the planning and writing of, of Once, I had quickly had a sense that I wasn't going to be able to do everything with him that I hoped to do in, in one book. I, I thought there'd just need to be a second. I'd read a lot about what had struck me as an incredible human phenomenon, which was the people, and it happens not just in in that particular war and those circumstances, but people who are prepared to risk everything Mm. as a gift, really, to help strangers, not friends, not family, not even members of the same religious or, or cultural community necessarily. And there were, of course, many people in World War II, who did just that for Jewish and other persecuted fugitives and saved many lives. Not enough, of course, but I, it still struck me as something I wanted to write about. But by the time I reached this realisation, I was well into once and there wasn't really room in once to do justice to that. And that's why the second book then came about. And I guess once I'd written the second book, you know, suddenly the temptation of a trilogy was too great. And also... The readers wanted more. Well, yes, although I think an author has to be very careful about that. I I mean, I certainly want to respect their wishes, but sometimes that's not... I'm not even sure if I should be saying this out loud, but sometimes that's not quite enough to know that you will even satisfy those wishes because, of Mm. course, a third or fourth or fifth book about the same group of characters has to be as satisfying and as and as good as, as the early ones. Well, I, I was lucky because there was something about Felix, and I tried very hard not to put the label favourite on any of my characters, but there was something about Felix and the friendship I developed with him. Well, it allowed me to do something I've never done with any of my other young characters, which is to 
as I did in the third book in the series, jumped forward 70 odd years to Felix's 80th birthday and write a story through the eyes and the, and the um, voice of his young granddaughter. But nonetheless, this, this boy was suddenly an elderly man. And that really was an incredible experience. And it's one that I repeated or I, I extended slightly in, in, in the final book of the seven, um, always, where Felix is 87. And um, I wanted to give him a chance to go back after a long and largely happy and contributive life, but obviously with some unresolved sadnesses and regrets. Why did you want to bring it to an end? Um, because every story must have an end. Mm. And I've always regarded, or as I've, over the years, as I've written these seven books, and it wasn't until I'd written about four or five that I decided that seven would be the number. And that wasn't because I'd noticed how well-served JK had been by, by the number seven. It was more at that stage, after I'd written the fifth book, I, I knew there were two more I really needed to write, but I also knew there needed to be an ending because we don't, none of us as readers can really fully know what a story is about and what its meaning is to us until we experience the end. And by the time I was saying, well, I've written five and, and, and I'm, I need to write two more, I was regarding these seven books, although I tried hard to write each of them as a, a freestanding book, and even to a, to a large extent so they could be read in any order because, of course, young readers can't always choose. They don't have the full access to, mm. to books that they might like and we might like for them. So, But, yes, those seven books, um, for me, is a seven-part story. And so until we, until we reach the end, yeah, even I, as as the author, don't know exactly what's been going on, I guess. But it's tricky. Are you going to miss Felix? Yes, I am. I am. But not, not completely because he's still with me and the friendships I form with all my main characters never go away. So even though I've decided I won't write another book with Felix physically present, you know, there are times when I get an idea for what such a book might be particularly as the first five books in the series are from his 10th to his 14th years. And then the final two are 80 and 87. There's a big gap. And, mm-hmm. and, and those final two books do a lot of looking back and we, and we get to know a lot of what Felix has done during those adult years. Yeah, I do sometimes come back and think, oh, 1946, he was 14. That's when he arrives in Australia. There's some pretty interesting things happening in 1947, 48, 49 in Australia mm-hmm. that I could well see Felix connecting to in all sorts of ways. So while officially, and I've got to choose my words carefully, I, I am resolved that I won't write any more mm-hmm. Felix books, but I think any of us who, who says never with absolute certainty is perhaps kidding ourselves a bit. Mm-hmm. And actually there is an idea that... If I go ahead with it, I, I've, I've, I've started working on two new books, which have nothing to do with the Felix series. But So I wouldn't even be writing it probably until 18 months down the track. But I've, I've been thinking about Felix's granddaughter, Zelda, a name that obviously has great resonance for people who've read the first two or three books in the series. She is very significant in the sixth book 
now, um, which, because it's told through her eyes and her voice, she makes only a brief appearance in the first chapter and a couple of the last chapters in Always. She's 19 and is going off to have a gap year working with her parents who are volunteer doctors in hospitals in um, North Africa and that part of the world. So I've been thinking a bit about when she comes back to Australia after that year in those very difficult places and how it might have changed, well, it almost certainly would have changed her. I've just started having a thought about a book where she would be the main character. A slight departure for me because she'd be 20 and, mm. you know, I've only written about 10, 11, 12, 13, 14-year-olds and, you know, a couple of 80-year-olds. But that's something, that's just a possibility. But it wouldn't be part of the Felix series. It would be, it would obviously have resonance and connection, but it would be a standalone book. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I want to touch a little bit on friendships and adversity. I mean, because that to me was interesting. It's an interesting thread. During wartime, you would have friendships. You would know friends that weren't having the same experience, you know, because war didn't affect everybody And when I think about COVID now and I think about friendships, we all, in a way, globally are having a similar experience. We are in all sorts of interesting ways. Yeah. And even at a very sort of primal level, when people are dying around us Mm -hmm. in all sorts of, I think, mostly good and useful ways, it, it causes us to become more aware and mindful of Mm. our friendships and of Mm. those people we care about. Mm. Um, And connectiveness, I think. I think that that's something that, you know, particularly during lockdown, I needed connections with people, you know, in whatever way you got them. Yes. Um, And that reminded me of war. I thought, I mean, we're so, I know that so many people are disparaging of social media, but it has given us access to connection to friends and people all over the world. It, and I think for me, that was that was kind of a godsend of your life. Yes, you know, I yes, needed it. Yes. And I have, I guess, some personal biases about social media, which is mm. that they serve all sorts of wonderful functions and carry a few problems with them. Of but course. um but of course they're they're not as good as being physically present. No. But if if that physical presence isn't possible, then 
in the old times of adversity, if you couldn't be with the people you cared about because they were off fighting somewhere or they, you know, because physical travel and connection is often disrupted in wartime, then you often had very little way of, of, mm-hmm. of actually connecting to them in real time. So, so certainly this has been... And they weren't having the same experience either. I remember in the first early days, and you probably had this experience as well, um, of COVID, that, you know, people were having Zoom drinks. <laughs> and my first one, I just got off and I thought it was so depressing. Like <laughs> I, I found it really demoralising, depressing. And, and over time it got better because you, they were the tools you had, you know. And I think of, yes. of wartime as well. It would be letter writing or it would be some way of trying to connect. And it wouldn't be even be the act of getting a letter back. It would be just writing the letter, right? Yes. And yeah. never never being certain. You that know, they're going to get it. That they're going to get it, yeah. Mm. Mm. I, Talk, oh, sorry, go on. Oh, I, I was just going to say, yes, I did a lot of Zoom drinks in the early stages too, and, and gradually I noticed that we and, and our, our virtual drinking companions were gradually drifting away from that particular. Mm. And, in mm. fact, I, I found that I just went back to the phone or, mm. or doing stuff on audio. It was almost as if seeing one's friends somehow emphasised the distance Whereas the voice in the ear, as all of us who listen to audiobooks know, has has a special intimacy, I guess. I think that's exactly what I did. I switched the camera off and I started to listen because it was too distracting and it wasn't working for me. Now, that's a good segue for for my next question. So talk to me about the process of audio, firstly about recording your audiobook yourself, but secondly, what you think about audio. I'm a huge fan. I've been a big fan for a long time. And my preference is always the ones that are narrated by the um, author. That's just something that I find. I mean, I know that that's not the same for everybody, but you tapped into it. It's the intimacy that I enjoy so much. And when the author is reading it, for some reason to me, it sounds more authentic as well. Yes, I, I think I'm grateful for the fact that that sense that it's that, that, it, that it is, that it has a bit more authenticity mm. um, can help forgive any performance deficiencies that, you know, an author has doing what is not their, not mm. their first job. Yeah. Um, but I'll start by saying that... Um, I grew up in a household where there was no television until I was about 14. So we listened to the radio. This is back in the 50s and 60s. So sitting around with other family members, but primarily using your ears, obviously we would sometimes look at each other to share a moment in in what we were experiencing. Yes, and, and, you know, listening to the radio, drama, comedy, um, spoken word late at night in bed is, is was a significant part of my childhood because one could do it with the lights off. It wasn't as much of a giveaway as, as you know, reading a book. And so when I started writing books and I realised that I could I could participate in, in this whole business of making audio books, I was very excited by it. And the very first one I recorded was one of my early books, Two Weeks with the Queen. It wasn't with Belinda. Um, I'm not even sure if they started doing audio books back in been about you know, 1991 or something and it was done basically on analog tape it was in a recording studio but every time I made a fluff which is and still is I have to say about you know four times a page the tape recorder had to stop and there was no 
trying to edit on the run, I would just go back a few words and start again. And it left a massive editing job, <laughs> um, which I know was so huge that it, it, it was almost an economic barrier to making an audiobook that way. But fairly soon after, well, certainly when Belinda, and, and, and it must have been, I would say, you know, 25 years ago, Sorry, Belinda people, I might be I might be cutting you short here, but um, once it was available, but what also happened was um, the technology became so much friendlier to someone like me because it's now and has been, I think, for pretty much all the time I've been doing it with Belinda. It's a computer program, and when I do a fluff, there's a visual representation of the reader's voice on the producer's screen, and the producer can literally see on this waveform, this, this zigzag sort of chain of mountains visual, the producer can go back and go in. We just sort of choose a few words prior to where I made the fluff. It's usually either the beginning of the sentence or an obvious breath point. Mm-hmm. And quickly one gets so experienced that when you make a fluff, you know exactly where they're going to go back and jump in. And they play the last... They play the few words that leads up to that point and you just pick it up there. And it means that there's no editing needed later. Mm -hmm. Uh, At the end of the um, recording period, they've got something that is, you know, pretty much uh, occasionally this bit of saliva click, I think it's called, and things like that, which aren't really picked up until they go back and listen to it again. And these days they can just clean that up as they go. Mm -hmm. So that technology has made it possible for me to do something that I'm not really equipped to do you know, without that technology. But I do love it. And I do, what also helps compensate for my lack of performance skills, well, it's a couple of things. One is that I keep it as minimal as I can. I've always preferred audiobooks myself that don't have people doing lots of voices. Occasionally, when you get somebody who's brilliant at it, it's fun. But I find that I write my books with very clear attribution of of the speech, of the dialogue, because that's what beginning readers are more comfortable with. So I tend to put a a he said, she said, or whatever, um, after every line of dialogue. And that actually helps, even though I'm doing a minimal differentiation between the voices, it's more I'll do slightly different patterns of emphasis or maybe a little more energy in one voice than another just to give a bit of differentiation. Um, I don't write many scenes where there's a whole crowd of people throwing in comments. They, my, my dialogue scenes are mostly between two or perhaps three people, which makes it easier for a novice like me as well. How long does it take you to record? How many days or it's, hours? For me, again, thanks to the technology, for me, for every hour of finished book, it takes me two hours in the studio. So... Most of my books are, they come out at around three hours and maybe 15, 20 minutes, that that sort of length. So I can do it in one day, six or seven hours of actual recording time. Oh, with, wow. Yeah, with, yeah. With, with some breaks. And it's, it's something I enjoy a lot. But what also helps me, the, the other thing that helps me is that I'm very familiar with the text. And I really admire professional audiobook narrators who who will be sent the manuscript, I don't know, sometime before they and I suspect, you know, they go through and mark it up. And that would be quite a quite a process, I would think. Whereas I've been 
through the book, you know, since its first draft, and and I've read it dozens of times as it's progressed. And the one, the one pitfall there is that if there's a particular sentence, a particular phrase that has been constant, say from the first draft through to the fourth, but when I'm correcting the page proofs, I suddenly think now there's a better way of doing that sentence, and I changed it at the last minute. I can be sitting in the recording studio looking at the text of the book as it is finally printed because we never do the audiobook until until the book is either at the printer or back from the printer. And I can see what the final version was, but I still read it as it was in its previous four drafts because my brain still thinks that's how yeah, it is. Yeah, wow. Do you think it makes you a better writer? Well, I think it can do, yeah. A craft um, in particular, yeah. Yes. I mean, I, I started my writing career as a screenwriter, so um, right. for the first 10 years, everything I wrote in my stories was, well, a lot of it um, was was to be spoken. There were obviously in, in screenplays that there's what, you know, the big print, the visual descriptions and instructions to, to the actors and directors as to what's actually being done. But the key part really is is the dialogue. So I have always been aware of the rhythms and the reproducibility of of, of my words by, by the spoken voice. And I think I'm I've, from day one with narrative fiction in books. I've been aware, and of course, it's also true that kids' books are read aloud by non-professional readers, but mm. the best sort of readers, loving, caring, enthusiastic readers parents, teachers, et cetera, and kids. I, I certainly, kids read aloud to each other as, as well, older siblings to younger siblings, et cetera. So it's, it's, it's really important. And as every parent knows, including me, to have a passionately enthusiastic young listener at home who wants you to read the latest novel by one of their favourite authors. I'm not going to name names for a moment, but there are some very good writers who capture the imaginations and the enthusiasm of young readers full force, but actually to read out loud are hard work. And it's Mm. just to do with rhythms and the sounds that words have together running on one from another, which you just don't notice as much when you're reading silently to yourself. But as soon as you've got to try and get, get it out of your mouth, it's either good for that process or not so good and I've I've always been very conscious of it and I think as I did with with screen dialogue I hear it I don't actually sit speaking it aloud myself but I hear it in a very specific way in in my mind and that gives me the great advantage of of knowing the best way in terms of emphasis and 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 delivery of knowing the best way to read each sentence in a book long before I find myself in the recording Mm. studio Mm. Morris, we're out of time. Incredibly interesting conversation. Congratulations on the book, always. And it is available um, as an audio book with you reading it. And hopefully we'll talk again soon. I hope so. Thank you very much. Really enjoyed it. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox 
that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.